Greetings. Our first lesson comes to us from the 22nd Psalm. This song invites us to remember God's presence in our trials and a reminder that God has compassion for all those in need. Listen to Psalm 22, verses 23 through 28. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he did not despise or abhor the affliction of the afflicted. He did not hide his face from me, but heard when I cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will pay before those who fear him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before him, for dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second lesson comes to us from the Gospel of Mark, the 8th chapter, beginning with the 27th verse. Listen again for God's word. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist, others, Elijah, others, one of the prophets. And then he asked them, who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ, the Messiah. And Jesus sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. And then, then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all of this quite openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but human things. And he called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake, for the sake of the gospel, will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words 
in this adulterous and crooked generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? Oh God, may some word that is heard today be yours that we might truly follow Christ and be his people. In his name we pray, and may all God's people say, Amen. As we shared on Ash Wednesday and last Sunday, Lent is a season of setting down and taking up. Lent is a season of setting down those behaviors and attitudes that get in the way of our faithfulness. Lent is a season of taking up new ways of being that propel us to follow Christ more closely. Our second lesson today presses us to look at this all the more deeply. Jesus tells us to set down human things and take up divine things. Jesus tells us to set down the world's priorities and take up our cross to follow him. But what exactly does that mean? Well, for one thing, it doesn't mean that mouthing belief in Jesus as Messiah is enough, as Peter learned the hard way. Setting down worldly values means that saying, I believe, is not enough. Peter certainly doesn't get it. Peter thinks that Jesus as the Messiah means Jesus is the winner, the savior, the one who will rule the world. Peter doesn't imagine that Jesus is going to be killed, crucified shamefully by the empire. That's the last thing Peter would imagine. But Jesus corrects him, even rebukes him. The cross, Jesus says, is not a sign that he isn't the Christ, the Messiah. In fact, the opposite is true. The cross is a sign that God will use Christ's power to upend the powers of the world. What difference does that make for us? What does it look like? For me, I think it starts with recognizing just how blinded we can be about what the world's values and power look like, just as Peter was blinded. It begins with us seeing with the sight, the vision of Christ, seeing the corrupt values all around us, seeing those things that are masquerading as strength, seeing them because until now, we just take them for granted. 
I was really moved this last week at a board meeting when my friend Bob Dunham gave the devotion. Bob, Bob, a retired pastor, started with this confession. He says, in my less faithful moments in recent months, I've been struggling with some anxiety that good is losing out to evil in the world and the arc of history might not be bending toward justice. In my head, I keep replaying an old NPR segment I heard years ago and never forgot. It was part of the series called This I Believe. Some of you may remember it. People from all walks of life shared their short credos, brief statements of truth they hung on to, and most of them were positive. I believe in the strength of community. I believe in resilience. But, Bob says, one compelling credo shook me. It began, I believe in a potential for brutality. The speaker was Yinong Yangju, who came to this country from China as a teenager. He, he now holds a doctorate in epidemiology from Harvard, and he works with post-traumatic stress. This is what he said about his life in China. He said, when I was six in the streets of Shanghai, near the end of the Chinese Cultural Revolution, I watched a parade of trucks carrying political dissidents on their way to be publicly executed. At the front of each truck was a young man roped from head to toe, wearing a sign that said, counter-revolutionary. If not for that, you would have trouble guessing what the event was. There was an air of festivity. Thousands were laughing, talking. It was like a traditional Chinese New Year celebration, except the city was celebrating its own brutality. I believe we are brutal, he says, because innocence can be corrupted, like mine was as a six-year-old in a time of revolution in China. When I first entered first grade, I started to wave flags, denounce the politically fallen of the day, and shout, death to counter-revolutionaries. My friends and I didn't want to miss the public torture of political dissidents. It was entertainment for us. But now, now he says, I believe brutality is a disease and every one of us is at risk. When our better instincts are suppressed, isn't that the beginning of brutality? I'm fortunate. I was too young to be a red guard where my brutality would have been codified. And I had a grandmother who showed me the value of kindness. And now he says, now I teach my children that hitting is never allowed. And I encourage them to be compassionate, to aid those in need, to stand up for the weak. Most of all, I try to be vigilant. I believe I must guard against my own potential for brutality and the mutation of my humanity. 
he was fortunate that he had a chance to see, really see what the values of his world were. And I wonder, what do we see when we look at our own country? There are racial divides everywhere. Political speech that belittles, threatens, disparages those with whom we disagree. Systemic injustice in the economy, in ecology, among races, genders, all sorts. There are now more than 800 active hate groups in our country. It is true, we must teach kindness and guard against the mutation of our humanity. But first, we have to see it. We'll never learn the behaviors of compassion if we first don't see the world's values that we have to put down. My friend Bob, my friend Bob went on to talk about the values that we can take up as Christians, the values that the world may not see as treasures, but that Christ leads us to. Compassion changes the way we see the world, the way we see each other. Compassion through Christ moves us to treat others as we wish to be treated, moves us to notice, to notice even small acts of kindness on behalf of those he called the least of these. What does it mean to follow Christ? I believe it begins by recognizing and setting down those values of the world we don't even see. And then it means taking up our cross, the cross of compassion and self-emptying, the cross of love for neighbor that's of far more value than any human power could ever hold. I was especially moved by, by the sharing that Bob said of one more testimony, another NPR segment. This time, a story of a million dollar bequest from the estate of an Austrian man to a small village in France. It came from the estate of Eric Schwann, who died last month at the age of 90. He had first arrived with his family in the town of Le Chambon sur Lignon in southeastern France in 1943. Like hundreds of other Jews fleeing the Nazis, Schwann's family found welcome and shelter there. 
Maybe you've heard about that little village. It was chronicled in a study of the community's heroism in a book, Lest Innocent Blood Be Shed. The author of that book, Philip Halley, spent years, years trying to discover what led those simple French villagers to do such an extraordinary thing at such great risk. What he found was they weren't particularly heroic or extraordinary people. They weren't even politically enlightened. Much of their education had come from the teachings of the village Protestant church and from its faithful pastor, Andre, and his wife, Magda. Week after week, the pastor proclaimed the word, and each week, the members of the parish studied the scripture, and every week, they came to understand their calling of discipleship and faithfulness. And over time, the people there came by nurtured habit to be people who knew what to do, and they were willing to do it. And when the time came for them to be courageous, specifically, when the Nazis came looking for the Jews, the people of La Chambon quietly did what was right. They sheltered their Jewish siblings from evil. There was one elderly woman who faked a heart attack when the Nazis came to search her house. She later said, Pastor always taught us that there comes a time in every life when a person is asked to do something for Jesus. When our time came, we knew what to do. Another woman, when asked why she would risk her life for the sake of these total strangers, replied, for what else was I born? We have a choice in our world now. We always have a choice about what values we will see and set down, about what values of Christ we will reach for and take up. The struggle, the struggle to see clearly is the struggle of a lifetime, and we can't do it alone. We need each other to see what our own eyes can't. We need each other to be reminded about what matters and what really, in the end, doesn't. What what it means to bear the name of Jesus, our Messiah, but not just say it, to do it, to take up our cross in his name. There's a practice that we can do this Lent. This Lent. We can practice seeing what is of true compassion in Christ and what is not. The practice of what it means to follow him 
and what it means to be stuck. The practice of what it means to recognize our common humanity and reach out to others to love each other as Christ has loved us. My prayer for us is that we will learn the capacity to set down the values of this world. It's fake glory. That we will grow in the capacity to take up our cross for the sake of the world that God so loves. Or to put it another way. For what else were we born? Amen. Thank you.